grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was only 29 years after the end of the War for Independence that the United States found itself at war once again and, and with the same Great Britain that uh, we fought in the War for Independence. This is known as the War of 1812, named for the year in which the war began. Girls and boys, a little Michigan history for you. During the War of 1812, the British captured a number of American forts. Do you know what the first fort was that was captured by the British during the War of 1812? I heard some guesses, but I couldn't figure out what they said. So if you said Fort Mackinac on Mac Mackinac Island, you are correct. That was captured without a single shot being fired in a surprise attack before actually the garrison of the fort knew that the war had been declared. But during the course of the war, other forts were attacked and, and fell, and some uh, stood successfully against the attacks. I want to talk a little bit this morning about an attack in 1814 on Fort McHenry, which guarded the entrance to the Baltimore Harbor. And the, the British Navy uh, wanted to get into that harbor in order to capture the city. By a series of events, a United States citizen was detained on board a British warship when the firing began. That man watched helplessly and, and anxiously as the bombardment continued for 25 straight hours. After the attack ended, without the fort surrendering, that observer, Francis Scott Key, wrote a poem about the emotion that, that he felt during the bombardment, and especially when the light of day revealed the still-waving American flag. Girls and boys, two more questions for you. The easy one first, what do we call the poem written by Francis Scott Key? Very good. It's our national anthem. Sometimes it's also called the Star-Spangled Banner. Either one of those answers would be correct. Here's a tougher one. Let's see if anybody can get this one. How many stars and stripes were on that flag in 1814? That was back when they would add a stripe and a star each time a state was added to the Union. If you thought 15, you'd be correct. 15! You got it. All right. <laughs> There's a joke there somewhere, but I'm going to let that go. <laughs> that flag, this is amazing to me, that, that battle flag was the largest one flown at the time. It was 42 feet wide by 30 feet high. I was always going to measure this, but this one here is not, probably not even half the size of that battle flag that, that flew over Fort McHenry. That was the flag that inspired the writing of our national anthem. And we're going to use the, the first line from the national anthem to guide our thoughts today 
it's hard to say this phrase. Actually, I've been practicing in practice because you always just want to sing it. But the, the first line in the national anthem, oh say, can you see? I don't know if you noticed, but that's pretty much the question that was asked in, in each of our scripture readings today. And we're going to take a look at, at two of those readings, uh, first from the Old Testament and then from the Gospel reading. To invite you, uh, if you would like to, to follow along in the sermon outline that's in your service folder. So we'll start with the Old Testament reading. There's a contrast there between the servant of Elisha the prophet and, and Francis Scott Key because uh, when Francis Scott Key, when the sun was coming up and, and his eyes saw the flag, he was thrilled. The servant of Elisha the prophet had just the opposite reaction by what the dawn's early light revealed to his eyes. But Elisha knew that there was a, a problem with his servant's eyesight. A problem that all people by nature share. He was seeing only with his physical eyes, which do not always see what's really there. That's why Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant to see what God saw. Because what was really there was not a powerful army, but in many ways, anyway, a powerless one. An army that was unable to harm either Elisha or his servant because between them and the Assyrian army stood another army of angels that was going to defend them from their enemy. Here's a lesson for us to learn and to relearn. To see what God sees requires us to use more than our physical eyes. It requires the eyes of faith. That's what Elisha sought for his servant. Because that man was trusting more what he saw than what God said. He believed his own eyes more than he believed God's promises. How often does that happen to us? Oh, say, can you see? Can you see what God sees? Or is your sight limited by what your physical eyes observe? When he wrote our national anthem, Francis Scott Key actually uh, talked about both kinds of vision. There's four verses to the national anthem. We usually sing only the first one. And in the first verse, he talks about what our physical eyes can see. But in verse 4, he refers to the eyes of faith when he says, Let this be our motto. In God is our trust. Now, of course, that sentiment was around long before Francis Scott Key penned those words in, in 1814. Our nation was founded with that belief. Our Declaration of Independence specifically references that. That also includes in that Declaration of Independence, there's a statement of dependence. Not upon the might of our armies, but upon the power and protection of Almighty God, the closing words of that document clearly and solemnly declare 
with a firm reliance, that's dependence, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Well said. Sadly though, throughout the history of our nation, throughout the history of our world, trust in God has been in short supply. We find it so much easier to trust our own desires, our own intellect, our own ability. Oh say, can you see what God sees? Can you trust him? Will you trust him? Trust him so that you can see the difference between a powerful army and a powerless enemy. Although, you know, it can also work the other way sometimes. Sometimes what we think is a powerless enemy is, is in reality a, a powerful army. I'm thinking here about Satan and his evil minions. It's so easy for us not to see the devil as the powerful threat to our faith that he truly is. Some people even question whether or not he really exists, as, as if maybe he's just a, a symbol for all the evil in the world. He's not a symbol. He's real. But you know, even for us who know that, it's, it's so easy to dismiss the awful threat that he poses. We don't always see any real danger, do we, in, in well, just listening to what he has to say or maybe giving in once in a while to his temptations. May the Lord open our eyes to see clearly, daily, what his power is like. When he comes to us with, when Satan comes to us with his suggestion that, that we ignore God and declare our independence from him. Oh say, can you see what Satan is really like? What he is really up to? Oh Lord, open our eyes so that we may see what you see. It may open our eyes also to see Jesus the way God does. Don't you like the way the folks in today's gospel lesson made that request? Sir, we, we wish to see Jesus. Sometimes I wonder why they wanted to see him. Maybe it was because they had heard that, that he was a great miracle worker. That's certainly possible because this, they showed up right after Jesus had performed the amazing miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Maybe they were hoping Jesus would perform a great miracle for them. Restoring them to health maybe or, or conjuring up a big pile of cash for them. Of course, we don't know. It's just speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us what their motive was. So, so why would we speculate? Because even if that was not their motivation, I think it's instructive for us to examine our own motivation to see if maybe sometimes that's why we want to see Jesus. 
because we hope that he will do something for us, for, perform some kind of miracle that would make our life easier, less stressful, more enjoyable. I'm not saying that's a sinful motive. I'm just saying that's not the way that God sees Jesus. How does God see Jesus? I'll tell you in a minute. First, a little more speculation. Perhaps those men wanted to see Jesus for a different reason than uh, his miracles. Maybe they heard that he was a, a wise man and a great speaker. They had some questions to which they hoped to receive practical, down-to-earth answers that would help them in their lives. Sometimes, sometimes we look to Jesus for those same kinds of things. Again, that's not sinful. But it's also not the way that God sees him, at least not primarily. How does God see him? I'll tell you in a minute. Before I do that, I need to point out another way that some see Jesus as, as a man who died on a cross and nothing more. They accept the historical narrative, but not the theological truth behind it. They see Jesus as a, as a well-meaning individual who got caught up in, in local politics and found himself on the wrong side of, of those who were in power. They see him only as a man. That's not how God sees him. How does God see him? Now I'll tell you. When God, what God sees when he sees Jesus, what God wants us to see when we see Jesus is nothing less than the salvation of the world. And God sees the cross as the way that Jesus brought about that salvation. Which means that on Good Friday, everything changed. I'll give you an example of that. Um, earlier this month, our nation observed the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of Europe. The suffering and the sacrifice that took place on that day could have prompted some to ask if if what was accomplished on D-Day was really worth it. So little ground was gained. So many lives were lost. What had really changed? To the casual observer, not much. To the Allied High Command, everything had changed as now the Allies had a foothold in Europe. And the difference that D-Day made became more and more apparent as, as every day the Allied forces reclaimed more and more territory from the enemy. Between D-Day and the end of the war, many more battles were fought, many more lives were lost. But after D-Day, there was little doubt about the ultimate outcome of the war. Maybe you can see the parallels to Good Friday. 
When Jesus hung on the cross, God saw what nobody else did. He saw the salvation of the world being achieved. To all other observers, nothing really remarkable was, was happening there. Nothing that, that many of them hadn't seen over and over again. And as far as they could tell, nothing had changed. But in reality, everything had changed. That became apparent on Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. God sees, and, and with the eyes of faith, we can too, that the ultimate victory has been won. The final outcome is not in doubt. Satan's army is still strong. We need to be aware of that and, and not let ourselves get ambushed by him. But Satan's army is defeated. Just as the battle flag of the United States flew over Fort McHenry the morning after the British bombardment, so also the Christian ensign, the, the cross of Christ, stands as a symbol of victory. Every time we lift high the cross in our lives, every time we return to the cross for forgiveness and strength, the kingdom of God advances a little more and reclaims more and more of the enemy's territory. Oh, say, can you see that? Lord, open our eyes to see what you see. Amen. In the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.